The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Good afternoon on this Freedom Day, 27 April 2020, and it's 26 years since our very first democratic election. A lot has happened within those 26 years, and we hope that uh, going forward we've learned a lot of lessons in the past 26 years, lessons that we can take forward in ensuring that the dreams that were enshrined in the 1955 Freedom Charter, the dreams that were discussed during Kedessa, the dreams that we endured during the, the Rainbow Nation phase of our very young democracy can come back and that we will see a, a perhaps massive drop in crime, not due to COVID, but due to, you know, social changes, changes that we as a people can make, not changes as a result of a massive worldwide pandemic. On that note, it was quite strange to see General Becky Chaley taking credit for his no alcohol rule and um, being a major contributor to a massive drop in crime. Although, yes, alcohol would contribute towards um, violence in certain instances, specifically um, GBV type um, incidences, as well as um, fighting, um, rapes. Um, attempted murders, etc. I think the lockdown has a massive role to play in respect of the success that we've seen in regards to the reduction of crime. So having our esteemed uh, Minister of Police taking credit because of his no alcohol policy is a bit of a kick in the teeth, especially when one is involved in the investigation of organized crime and sees what prohibition did to America. In fact, the mafia worldwide would never have reached the point it did of such massive financial success through violence, intimidation, extortion, if it wasn't for prohibition. So the limiting of cigarette sales, the limiting of alcohol sales, etc., although these are, these are, are social problems, they're health problems, etc., in our current law, they are not illegal. And as such, I'm looking forward for the, the sake of smokers. I don't smoke myself the lifting of those restrictions, and when the restrictions get lower, that um, al- people that drink alcohol also able to buy alcohol, I look forward to that for them as well. Uh, we, we do not live in a police state. We just have to ensure that we do abide by the current lockdown rules. Talking about taking credit where credit shouldn't be taken, our esteemed Minister of Transport, Vikilin Balula, also took credit for a wonderful year in respect of the lowest recorded incidents in recent years of road accidents during the Easter weekend. Well, once again, Minister, with respect, it's due to the lockdown. It's not due to any um, type of implementation of any new systems that have taken place, etc. It's simply because we have a lockdown in place. But we're learning a lot from this lockdown. We're learning that we can stay at home. We're learning that we must abide by the rules. And we're also learning that having force multipliers on the ground, whether it's Sandov, whether it's the security companies, etc., does contribute towards fighting crime in South Africa. I'm joined in a couple of minutes by Jacques van Weyck. We're going to be chatting about leadership during crisis. I'd just like to remind you before that, beforehand that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of High FM. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. 
My name is Chad Thomas. You're listening to Confidential Brief. And I'm joined today by Jacques van Veek, who is a director of a company, JGL Forensic Services, which has been around since 2001 and basically is there for specialized forensic accounting and financial investigative services in South Africa and further abroad. Um, we discuss forensic investigations, crime extensively on this program because that is the essence of, of problems that we've been facing in South Africa over the years, endemic corruption, tender fraud, tender manipulation, and state capture, of course. But today I want to chat to Jacques about an interesting paper he put out recently, which is called Leadership in Times of Crisis. And he started this particular paper by stating the following. American author James Lane Allen famously said, crisis does not build character, it reveals it. Jacques then goes on to say it also has, and as has been seen by some of the world's leader during the coronavirus, reveals a lack of it. Firstly, Jacques, welcome to the show. And secondly, tell us a little bit more about that controversial statement about some world leaders showing lack of leadership. Okay, Chad. Firstly, thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your show. Welcome to your listeners. Uh, Chad, uh, I think, you know, this is a difficult time as you open your opening statement. And, uh, you mentioned two of our ministers that you know, made statements uh, about, you know, road accidents and crime where, you know, one could say it's stretching the truth. Or we have our communications minister that uh, instead of being a leader by example, uh, shows exactly the opposite as we had in Ireland. So, you know, we look at our leaders uh, and, and those people that believe Tony said it's our leaders that show us. So, if the leaders lack integrity or the leaders lacked, uh, you know, um, that underlying values, then people at the bottom look up and say, but if top management, top leadership, if that is acceptable, must I behold a higher standard? So, you know, the Tony said at the top, you know, right from the head, and that's from where that article uh, was done is that you know um, we always say there must be a crisis and then we step up we should be there at the front show lead by example you know if we make a mistake we apologize we take corrective action and we move forward because if we set a high then we can expect the people that we lead and look up to us to also strong that high level of integrity at the top would you in your opinion because our president has received mostly positive reaction in respect of the way in which he has taken on this this um, COVID-19 crisis and the way in which he's instituted measures. Um, how do you rate his leadership during this crisis? I think the president have stepped up. Uh, I think one of the frustrating things for South African in, for the last few years have been that there was a very high expectation in terms of the president and changes and reforms we needed in the economy. Uh, at broad, uh, because we tried to, obviously we wanted to prevent a, a downgrade, our last investment grade downgrade. And, uh, you know, we didn't see that action. It's always been that internal fighting in, in the governing party has, has sort of put that on ice. And yet, when the crisis happened, suddenly the president made very decisive decisions and actions. Uh, what is also very clear is that he's been uh, in a very deep consultative process every time with the various roles and stakeholders. So it's not just that he made the decision, but after he's consulted, he has made a decision. And I think that also is important from a leadership uh, point is that that we do consult, that we do listen. 
But ultimately, there must be, you know, somebody has to look at if it's popular or not, you know, because I've always maintained that if you do not make a decision in life, that your things and environment will make a decision for you, i.e. meaning that uh, you will go in a direction that you maybe didn't foresee or planned or wanted, but because of no action, it forces you in that direction. So I think it's good that the president has made a decision. I think there's a lot of pressure on him at the moment to allow economic activity ramp a lot faster. Um, you know, there has been criticism about the models that's been used on which these decisions, this risk-based approach has been done. But yet, leadership isn't perfect. So uh, we hope that what we have seen to date is what will be carried forward. And I think that leadership, uh, that that will also permeate through the rest of the cabinet at national and provincial and local level. Uh, because I think that's very frustrating, and I don't just mean it for government. I also mean it for business. Uh, you know, it's easy to government, but we all, either leaders in our house, at our communities, our businesses, in government, uh, wherever we are, should show that maturity and leadership uh, skills and, and make good decisions. So, But let's give the president a thumbs up and hope that we can carry forward and ask that the positive momentum will continue, Chad. Well, I thank you for that because um, I also believe the president has stepped up during a very difficult time. He's shown leadership. Um, we've seen, compared to other countries, a far limited exposure to the COVID-19 crisis than one would have expected. We're an emerging economy, a, so a so-called third-world country. When one looks at so-called first-world countries or Western nations, they've suffered far worse. When one looks at Italy, when one looks at Spain, when one looks at the United Kingdom, and, of course, when one looks at America, and in particular New York, they've been hit terribly by this. And there's multiple reasons going around why perhaps we haven't been impacted, and one of the, the theories is because we've all, somewhere along our lines, whether we were in the military, whether we were at school, whether we were of age, we at a stage had a, a, a BCG injection for respiratory disease, and that this may have helped. Um, whatever the case, let's hope that we can keep these numbers as low as they've, they, they've been kept, and that this is not the calm before the, the proverbial storm, and that perhaps we will be spared the crisis we've seen rolled out in, in places like New York City, where one would have expected, especially in the wake of, of the, the attacks of 9-11, a, a city and a state far more prepared than any city or state in the world for a, for a crisis of any magnitude. So, you know, South Africa, we'd be nervous because of the high incidences of HIV, of lowered immunities because of malaria, TB, etc. But it seems like the president's decisions in terms of the lockdown may have contributed significantly towards our country not suffering um, the same as what other countries have. With that being said, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be chatting more to our guest about leadership and how leadership has impacted on fraud and corruption in South Africa and what he and his organization have been doing to combat this. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm in conversation with Jacques van Veek today. He's a director of a company, um, JGL Forensic Services. Jacques, tell us a little bit more about JGL. I see you were founded way back in 2001. 
Um, strangely enough, that's the, that's the year I also went into private practice. So that's 19 years of providing a forensic service. What is it that you do? You're right. I was one of the founding members. I was in um, academia first and did a lot of research on then white collar crime. And then the forensic industry as we know it today was still the Wild West. And it was still sold as, uh, I believe, as a forensic auditing. And uh, then I had an opportunity to go into the environment and uh, it grew, you know, uh, from being auditors and accountants to disciplinary environment we are today with lawyers, account auditors, investigators, IT specialists uh, and those type of environments. So we focus on financial crime, uh, fraud, corruption, you know, uh, and those type of uh, crimes where there's a financial component involved. Uh, and we work across both public and private sector and with the law enforcement agencies. Um, over the years, our environment have evolved, like you correctly pointed. You've been on the same journey as, journey as us, where, you know, the role has changed to assist your client with the investigation, then with dealing with the fix-up um, with the teams, and then also taking that through the court system, the legal system, if it's going criminal. Uh, to support uh, the legal teams, police uh, prosecutors for success. So the role in the forensic space, I think, have uh, our role have evolved as the environment uh, quite correctly. I, w- I was saying uh, <laughs> that um, I noticed that you specialised um, in forensic accounting as well, and that is that is a skill that's lacking, unfortunately within certain critical departments within our state criminal justice system. The Auditor General's Office, SARS, etc., they capacitate it. But when one looks at the specialized commercial crimes units of the police, etc., there's been a brain drain. All the guys that had the knowledge, that had the experience, and that had the, 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 the training have left. How do we recapacitate these individuals within the state? How do we do a skills transfer so that we know that the members we're dealing with have the necessary background to be able to coexist with us in terms of the investigation? You know, it's a process. Uh, I don't think there's, a, there's – I think the short term is for government to tap into the private sector and the capacity within the private sector. Uh, but with any system, you, you, it takes time. You know, you need to get – you need to expose them, uh, you know, and take them through a learning curve. There is unfortunately – uh, no shortcut to experience, and that comes just through slogging and, and working and, and learning and making mistakes. That is where uh, the public and private sector can take hands. You're quite correct. A lot of people that left government with those skills were taken up by the private sector. They came highly recommended, had years and years of experience, uh, and like all good businesses, you always look for that competitive experience. <laughs> Reorganized uh, within the private sector, so it's there. It's how do we, you write correctly, work together with government to transfer those skills back to government. Um, and and I think, unfortunately, for many years there's, there there has been this animosity between government and private sector. You know, where we don't want to tap into the private sector because you know you 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 on our turf. You how dare you be turf versus being a collaborative um, uh, partnership uh, where we can help. And I think there's a great uh, amount of goodwill in the private sector because a successful state means a successful society and a good environment for business to operate in. Um, 
one of the big symptoms because of this big brain drain, the low conviction rate within the court system. Um, and you cannot expect somebody that came out of a police college or year two in the police that has been family uh, violence now coming across to commercial crime to have that knowledge and experience to accomplish fraud analysis and flow of funds. So it is about being willing to reinvest into government. Uh, and, Chad, I think, you know, I can't speak for other organizations, but the people I interact with, there is a great uh, amount of goodwill there to partner up again and share and guide, uh, because we need that capacity within government. Um, you know, it contributes to that successful state. And and let's be honest, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela said famously many years ago, you know, if you shoot the white stripe on the zebra, the zebra dies. And if you shoot, shoot the black stripe, and that every part of our society are in our overall success. Let's really help, but it's a long-term project. It's not a one-year project. It's not a three-year uh, if I have to guess, you know, going back on my academic days, you're looking probably at a 5, 10, 15 year timeline here. But the way to start, we must start somewhere in order to build that capacity, to build that momentum. And then when we look back, hopefully by the time that me and you retire, you know, we will have that benefit of the state being recapacitated um, and we having that success. But it is a journey. Uh, there will be mistakes, you know, there will be successes. I think it's important that you people, some of the big frustrations I think we see in the communities at the moment is that, uh, you know, why aren't the people involved in the Guptas and the state capture being successfully prosecuted, you know, and not always appreciating the processes that followed and, and be done. We need to, where we partner, where we transfer, where we teach, where we have successes, communicate so that the community and the people out there can add slowly but surely we, we're winning this battle, you know, uh, and it's a partnership. And, and, and the end of the day is we all win from it, but we need to share, we need to communicate so we can build that confidence levels between citizens and government as well, Chad. Jacques, you, you're 100% right. So we've seen the good work that's been done by NPOs and NGOs. And I think it's important that we carry on discussing the effect that um, force multipliers can have in the fight against crime, not just contact crime, but the biggest scourge, which is what we term white-collar crime, which seems to lessen what it actually is, but it's actually worse. We've reached the halfway mark of the show. It is Freedom Day. Six years ago today, I was sitting at the Civic Theatre, now known as the Nelson Mandela Theatre. It was called the Anthems of Democracy. And we had people like Joan Armitage, we had Bright Blue, we had Yvonne Chaka Chaka, and a whole lot of wonderful guests on the stage singing. And one of those people that was singing was none other than Sipo Hotsticks Mabuza, and he was singing my absolute favourite song. And you're going to hear it right now. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Talking about not being islands, when it comes to the fighting of crime, we're seeing more and more NPOs, NGOs, and private sector companies such as JGL and others taking up the challenge of fighting organized crime in South Africa, fighting tender challenges, fighting corruption, fighting fraud. And during a, a discussion last year, um, on International Fraud Day, I was at one of the well-known insurers in Cape Town in the auditorium. 
I gave a presentation on public-private partnerships and the Hawks, the SIU, and a couple of organizations were present. I was a bit skeptical as to how they would receive my my call to them for for us rendering assistance, etc. And I was so heartened because the person who stood up to speak after me was a brigadier from the Cape Town Commercial Crimes based in Belleville. And her first slide, she does PowerPoints, I don't, I'm hopeless. Her first slide was public-private partnerships and the valuable role that private sector companies can play in this particular space. So I'd like to ask my guest, Jacques, are, are you finding more and more that the state is relying on your expert evidence in the way you compile statements, in the way you research your cases when presenting it to them for prosecution? Absolutely. Uh, you know, in the last five, six years, uh, you know, there's been exponential growth of uh, collaboration with law enforcement agencies. Either way, we bring cases to them uh, that has to go through the system or we assist uh Government departments uh, uh, from national players, and uh, it's it's a positive engagement. Uh, I, I always, when people complain about law enforcement, uh, I always say to them, you should appreciate that when a client approaches a firm like us, I can say to them, I know you know I go into your matter or two, and if that time frame does work for you, can I you know refer you to somebody else? Uh, somebody in government, you know, do not have that option. Uh, and we're dealing with, uh, with investigators within government, uh, and law enforcement that have got 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 cases on their desk. So the question is, where do you start and where do you finish? Uh, you know, they face by the tsunami and we, I can fashion a, a investigative team that meets a very specific goal in, in, in a client's investigation that individual or that department within government and or the uh, law enforcement might not have those resources available or have limited resources available. So, you know, uh, it's, it, we're not comparing apples with apples sometimes, but I have experienced also what you've just said there uh, with when you were in Cape Town last year is that there's a greater willingness within law enforcement and government to work with private entities like ourselves and NGOs uh, and NPO, those type of uh, organizations. Uh, but unfortunately, also we sometimes our own worst enemies, where instead of working with institutions, you know, we want to be prescriptive. We want to tell them how to do this, you know, you know, and, and that causes a lot of animosity. So instead of talking with people and working together with them, uh, you end up talking down to them. And, then you meet these individuals and they say, but I've had a bad experience working with uh, organizations out of the private sector. And then, then you have to rebuild those. Um, or you find that uh, people uh, where they've worked with law enforcement has abused laws of law enforcement uh, in terms of certain issues and things. And, and it reflects then, they don't reflect on the person or the organization. They, they reflect on the industry as a whole. I think there is a great opportunity. I think there is a need. There is a willingness to work with us and vice versa with ourselves as individuals and as an individual. Uh, we must hold ourselves to that high level of integrity and professionalism so that we don't have that pushback because of one or two individuals' actions within uh, that interactions, uh, which harms our cooperation as individual on that. 
You're 100% right. What we've seen in both Gauteng and the Western Cape is a project known as E2, which is abbreviated Eyes and Ears, and it's involved quite a few of the bigger security companies as well as local security companies that have a footprint in a specific area. And what they've done is they've created a war room where SAPS controllers are working together with controllers from these respective security companies that have a presence in certain areas and using these security companies as force multipliers to help react and respond together with SAPS. We need to see the same happening in respect of um, non-contact crimes. We need to see the state taking advantage of the massive skill set that exists within the private sector. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to pick up on the force multiplying. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. For those that uh, may be interested in the latest statistics, which I think uh, are quite important just to understand the global reach of this pandemic, the current figure, and this is the live tally, is sitting at 2 million Gosh, I sound like our ex-president. 2,981,592 cases. That's just short of 3 million cases globally, of which there's been 206,803 deaths. So we're looking at a pandemic um, just in the United States, 965,933 cases, of which there's been 54,877 deaths. This truly is a pandemic. This is not a flu like everybody's saying. This is not because of 5G. This is not because Bill Gates wants to come give you some other vaccination. Let's be serious about this lockdown. Let's be serious about what rules and regulations have been laid out by our president and by his support team. And let's really try to get through this. It's really something that has changed the world forever. I never thought I'd see anything like this. Jacques, in your lifetime, did you ever anticipate living through something like this? Absolutely not. I mean, not in my wildest dreams in terms of business disruption or epidemic. Have I ever thought, Chad? This is, you know, this is, uh, you know, one of those events. We go through the 9-11, you know, that you, when you opened the show, you know, and uh, we go through... The 1999, you know, recession globally in 2009, we go through it again, you know, and, and then this happens and within months, the whole world and the way we do business and the way that we educate, uh, have changed dramatically. You know, I have, uh, kids at school and, uh, the way that technology have been used, uh, to pass on the material and the lessons, uh, is just amazing. Um, and how the house routine have changed, but yet we have adapted nothing. That's the wonderful thing about human nature. We've got the ability to change and adapt. You know, sometimes we don't want to, but then we are forced and then we step up to the challenge. Um, so short answer is no. The long answer is I think forever our lives will be changed. Um, but we need to support and help those around us as well because you just before the break pointed out. There are people that's facing challenges, and it's it's emotionally difficult, uh, you know, if you're alone or old, where you if you're not in a family environment. But Jacques, you've raised some some really interesting points about how children are now learning remotely. Um, I've learned how I can do a radio interview without being in studio, without having 
Tabo next to me or Craig next to me, giving me my cues, having screens in front of me, working off Skype. Um, we've had Zoom conferences. Do you think that this is going to have a change um, in in the coming years that it is going to be a a generational change? In other words, we're going to learn from this and start doing things differently. Absolutely, uh, Chad. Uh, you know, I think technology has slowly but surely uh, changed the way that we deliver things. I mean, from static television and then, you know, we had our little uh, laptops, which weighed, you know, if you think back many years, weighed 15 kilograms in a short battery life. And then, you know, we had tablets and now it's on phones and now we download, you know, movies, you know, the whole entertainment environment have changed. And yes, although video conferencing was there, it's going to change. Um, you know, at what pace it's going to change? You know, I read articles where people say, well, you know, it's going to be different forever. I do think, you know, 30, 40% of our day or how we interact is going to change. In terms of the forensic environment, you know, I look at technology as an enabler. Um, you know, we use a lot of tools, but I also think that sometimes technology makes people lazy uh, because the machine says, you know, so I think technology will be a great enabler here and it is going to change the way we do meetings and it's going to change the way we do investigations and, and, and. But I don't think it is going to be a big bang. I think the big bang was the corona virus and that will now lead this change revolution and the way that we roll out things and change things. Uh, but at the heart of ourselves, we remain, you know, we want people around us, uh, you know, we crave it. So uh, I do think that although there will be less you know, face-to-face meetings and, you know, the work environment will change. I think that interaction part will stay because of human nature wanting that interaction at the end of the day. Well, as a fellow forensic investigator, my um, promise to my clients is, unlike attorneys, we don't litigate by correspondence. We knock on doors. So we're still <laughs> going to have to be knocking Absolutely. on doors once yes, this absolutely. virus is gone and we're allowed out. We're still going to have to go to police stations and open dockets, etc. But seeing how my, my staff have risen to the challenge and worked from home, how we've been able to, to, to teleconference, etc. Yes, those tools have been available, but we've never been forced to use them. It's just shown how we can save on infrastructure with our phased, um, um, business continuity once we go down to level four. And unfortunately, level four comes in on a public holiday. So we're only going to see on the 4th of May professional businesses going back into um, in, into the offices, etc. We've done it from a phase perspective. You know, we'll have investigators in different groups coming in on different days to ensure social distancing. We'll be going to police stations to open dockets later in the day when it's calmed down and so that they can go straight home after that and 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 clean, etc. So it's it's changed a lot of the mindset. But what South Africans must remember is we are an incredible nation. In 1993, December, Ops Protector was introduced into Causa Cutlong Phosphorus. Our country was basically at war. The body count was 26 a day. Um, you had the IFP, MP, and the ANC SDUs fighting amongst one another. You had the Boy Patong attacks in 94. You had the IFP march on Shell House, and we had three days of martial law in Johannesburg declared uh, in, in the wake of that because the IFP kept on coming back into Johannesburg and, and fighting with the um, armed services, etc. We were on a knife edge as an entire country. We thought there was going to be civil war. 
And then the 27th of April came about today, 26 years ago, and civil war was forgotten. The bloodshed was forgotten. We became this rainbow nation. We achieved incredible things. And unfortunately, things did go south after that. But the point I'm making is we came from a time of hardship where there were curfews in townships. There were um, lockdowns taking place. There was violence on the streets. There were riots. And we were living in a perpetual state of fear, much the same as now. And we became a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. So, Jacques, I'm the eternal optimist. What about you? Absolutely. Um, you know, you talk about the changeover process, you know, uh, and, you know, at the Kudesa, you know, you had people with armed carriers going through uh, transport, going through windows and trying to disrupt. Uh, but at heart, Chad, what do we want? We all want the best for our kids. We want to build a future for our kids in a country. We want, we want to see the country prosper. So you're quite correct. We have it within ourselves to do this. Um, and that means for us, our families, our communities. But unfortunately, you know, I think sometimes politics, politics get in the way. And, you know, politicians put themselves ahead of communities. Uh, and this is everywhere in the world sometimes. But South Africans are resilient. Uh, they want to see this country succeed. Everybody wants it. And we can do this. I believe in it fundamentally. I'm here. I do what I do every day. Because I want to make it a better place. Uh, I don't want my kids to worry about some faceless criminal in a syndicate somewhere selling them fake uh, medicine. Or, you know, being ambushed somewhere to get a car. Uh, or ripping off a tender, which means that because it's a bloodless crime, it doesn't impact. And, and I think one of my big frustrations is, in our, you know, because we talk about white-collar crime and, you know, and, and it's a victimless crime. It's not. For, uh, you know, at the heart of white-collar crime is the poorest of the poor suffers the hardest because the money does not reach those people that need it the most. It doesn't impact on their lives the most. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's scary that we, 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 because we look at violent crime, you know, you know, so white-collar crime is not that bad. We need to stamp out crime at every level we find it, be it violent, be it financial, but Wrong is wrong and right is right. And as long as we have this attitude that we will tolerate small crimes, um, we're not going to get rid of the big crimes. It starts with the speed limit. If you break the speed limit, you're breaking the law. If you don't stop at the traffic uh, sign, you're breaking the law. But we justify it. So if I steal a ream of paper, you know, if I use the company credit card, you know, so, so where do we draw the line? 1,000 rand, 5,000 rand, 10,000 rand. And I come back to leadership. Should lead by example. Company executives should not use company resources to go away, have holidays, you know, benefit themselves, their family. It starts wrong is wrong and right is right. We must lead by example. And we're going to change this country because we, as people of South Africa, made a decision not to go to civil war, not to fight each other but to learn from the past to build the future and not to get stuck there. But we must learn from the past in order to go into the future. And that brings me to your point about education. Hopefully what we can take away from this is that we can use a lot more technology to reach those far-flung uh, schools that are not so resourced as the cities to bring the knowledge and the expertise and the teaching skills to every corner of this country. The future is technology and knowledge. 
We are moving away from brick and mortar. We are now in the fourth industrial revolution. You know, I love it when people say we're going into it. We actually transitioning already in towards the fifth industrial revolution. Uh, we only sort of catching up now. Um, and I jokingly always say to people, it's because we, uh, there's the revolution in the word, but let's use this to take away positive things and going forward. Jacques, you're 100% right. The fourth industrial revolution, together with what we've learned during this pandemic, will take us further, especially through education. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners, you can find out more at www.jglforensics.co.za. You can also send an email, info at jglgroup.co.za. A reminder before we shut down is that we, we are a nation of survivors, but we are also a nation with massive disparity. There are those out there that are hungry. If you can support a feeding scheme, please do so. Jacques, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Chad, for the opportunity to talk to you and wishing your listeners a, a safe time at home. And thank you for your call for support. Let's make a difference. Even if we can help one person with a meal, let's make a difference. And uh, please stay safe out there. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to Tabo, our studio engineer, who's put everything together at the studio, thank you so much for your efforts today. And to all of our listeners for joining us, thank you so much. Join the, confide- join the conversation on Facebook at Confidential Brief Radio Show. I'll say it again, Confidential Brief Radio Show. It's on Facebook. You can join the conversation. We had a huge response with regards to the books that uh, are on offer from last week's guest. We still have books available. Send us your name. Send us your number via that Facebook link, and you'll get that book straight after lockdown. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll be back same time, same place next week.